Welcome to Fossils by Firelight, a series of conversations with South Africa's geological legends, where they unearth their discoveries, learnings, memories, interesting stories, and maybe a few tall tales to chronicle our history and inspire the next generation of geological heroes. Welcome to all the young men around here. And uh, it's not to offend calling you young men. Uh, it's because you inspire a lot of geologists out there. Um, we are in the presence of greatness. So welcome again to each and every one of you, um, including we've got some three past presidents, actually. Um, I just got to say, um, one of them was a president when I was one year old, and the next one when I was three years old. And then 10 years later, the same president was president again for a second term. And then, yes, I didn't want to mention any names, but then uh, the next president was, yeah, it came a year after Richard's second term. So we are in the presence of greatness, as I said. Um, So I am a bit starstruck or rock starstruck. And just thanks again to Solid Gold Studios, uh, the perfect geological setting for some wood's gold. So I'll hand back over to, to Nolene to kick off. So obviously you have been inspired, Safisa, because you've been a president as well. But I think we're going to start with the person who has been the president most. Um, Richard, <laughs> why don't you kick off this conversation? I really appreciate you asking us to this event, which I think is very important. While we're still here and kicking, we can you know, download some of our knowledge and some of the things that happened. I, in fact, personally worked for four of the major uh, mining groups, the mining houses, as they were called. Uh, I've heard them called the Big Seven, the Big Six, the Big Five. But in any event, (laughs) there were seven at one stage, and now there are none. So uh, I think the story of why there are none is important and what happens after the big mining uh, groups. You must understand the mining houses of those days, I don't think there's anything like them today. They were absolutely unique. These were multi-commodity industrial mining companies. And I know Anglovar, in fact, all of them had the most amazing empires. There was a time where the six or seven or five or whatever it was comprised about 75% of the capitalization of the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. Uh, so, so, and that included food, property, newspapers, breweries, uh, hotel groups, cars, you know, everything that was all owned in the mining companies. And JCI was just an extraordinary place. We had amazing people, uh, scientists of, of high caliber, and there was always somebody that you could learn something from. We had extraordinary uh, members of the board and I mean, Ron, Richard, and I all worked for JCI, and uh, we were just uh, reminiscing earlier about Gordon Waddle, who, who was our chairman for a period of time. And boy, he uh, he was a mover and shaker, and he he was the first person that, on an executive level, who really recognised the role of and the importance of a geologist. And uh, all good things happened to, to a lot of us who worked quite hard under under his. Uh, his watch. In any event, I spent something like uh, 35 years of my career uh, with the mining houses and uh, had a fantastic uh, career w- with them. And I'll, I'll, I'll explain uh, briefly uh, some of the events that happened. I think the first thing that uh, comes to mind is the importance 
which I'm not sure what the present status is with younger geologists, but we all, during the vacations, would look for vac jobs. Vac jobs are very important. And in, in this regard, uh, the mining houses uh, were extremely good because they always employed a whole bunch of students uh, for VAC jobs. So to give you an example, my very first uh, VAC job at the end of my first year in 1958, before all of you were born probably, <laughs> <laughs> um, was with uh, Anglo-American. And um, I was stationed at the a Western Reefs gold mine in the Clarksdorp area. So I arrived in the mine, but before I arrived, they said, oh, no, now there's one thing you've got to do. So I said, oh, what's that? You've got to get a red ticket. Otherwise, there's no ways you can go to a mine. So I thought, what is this red ticket? And uh, you know, I soon really discovered the red ticket was to make sure that you were healthy and that you were able to go underground. So I arrived in the mine, after my first visit underground with a uh, with one of the mine geologists, I realized why I did need a red ticket. It was hot as Hades, and uh, we were perspiring, and I thought, here, is this, is this the job of a geologist? In any event, it, it turned out that it was, and the geologist's job was to map underground, to map the geology. And I think that was a seminal lesson. You've got a map. Wherever you are, you got a map. So that was my first VAC job. And you also got to know how mines operated. You got to know the other divisions on the mines, the metallurgy, uh, the mining engineering side, and how these different disciplines were integrated and worked together. Very important. So that um, taught me quite a bit. But the other thing was the social side, which was another story. <laughs> <laughs> I won't go into too many details. Except to say that living in a mine single quarters, and I don't know if, who have done that, but it's quite an experience, the characters that you meet. Yeah. But this is important. You've got to understand who you're working with in the mining industry. So that was my first experience, uh, uh, and I learned a heck of a lot, uh, particularly about mapping underground, which stood me in good stead later on. I've actually felt guilty quite a lot of my life because when I was at Rhodes, I went to study geography and chemistry, and they said to me, you can't do the two together, so why don't you do geology? Now, I, I'd grown up uh, uh, with an older brother who was a friend of Alan, Prof. Alan Wilson, and they were very keen on rocks and things, and so my brother was always bringing these rocks home and talking, and, and Alan was always talking about it. So I had that background, but... It didn't strike me that that was somewhere I wanted to go in the rest of my life. So, so here I am at Rose being told that I can't do what I want to do. I must go and talk to the, uh, the geology lecturer, Bertie Raddock, and go and ask him about geology. And Bertie said to me, look, this is it. You know, you come and do geology. It's, it's lacquer. <laughs> so I did geology. And six months into the year, uh, we got a, 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 a note from the prof about the Chamber of Mines are asking students who would like to do a VAC job uh, in geology on the mines. And uh, again, I thought, no, I want to go home and I want to go and see my family. And, and Larry Newoff was my big buddy by then. And Larry said to me, Ron, we, this is it. This is where we're going, boy. So we both applied for a job 
I got the job and Larry didn't, which <laughs> anyway, uh, he subsequently sorted himself out. And I ended up at Rustenburg Platz at the end of the year. And that was it. Um, I was convinced this is what I really wanted to do. And uh, for the next uh, year, I uh, applied again for a VAC job at JCI, with JCI, and again asked for Rustenburg Platz. And they said, no, sorry, jobs are taken there. You'll have to go somewhere else. I uh, ended up at Western Areas, Frank. So I can tell you now, Frank, that that convinced me of one thing. Richard has mentioned the heat. On one day, I lost seven kilograms. <laughs> I promise you. Uh, and I didn't have seven kilograms to lose. I didn't think much about my own career, but just to back Frank's one comment, I went, my first job was on Free State Gedult, which was a fairly deep, difficult mine in the Free State, and Western Holdings, we did both. And boy, they put us in, maybe I must be careful about this, because my family told me I mustn't use the term black or white, but we went into what they called white daily paid hostel. Now, this was very interesting, because this hostel was full of they were mainly European guys out of the eastern block in, in, in Europe who'd come out and they were the miners. They weren't engineers. They, weren't, they just were miners. And I'll tell you, I was in that white daily paid hostel for a while. These guys used to drive motorbikes up the stairs to their room at night and park it next to their bed. They used to, they used to shoot, one guy used to shoot rockets every night after dinner on the lawn. All night, he, he would shoot a dozen rockets every night of the year. And the, there were knife fights in the, in the dining room. There was, it was a remarkable place, I'll tell you. But you did learn the kind of guys you had to deal with underground. And that was a great learning period. I enjoyed my time at Rhodes and every long vacation which was uh, over the December, January, beginning of February period, I would work vacation jobs. The first couple were up in uh, to the north of the Zambezi with chartered exploration, and then uh, the last couple out of Rhodes. I, I worked uh, in what was then southern Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, and it was a very varied uh, type of work. Small uh, gold mines, mapping, sampling, base metal propositions, uh, industrial min minerals, chromatite work on the Great Dyke. Very interesting. I think uh, all of us, we have a passion for for the rocks, and they don't, I was saying to Dirk, they don't move. Well, they do if you mine them, but <laughs> that's a good end result. But the so you can never stop learning. I, I would still learn every, something every day of my life uh, around the rocks. I was just underground today at uh, Agnes. I'm managing Agnes Mine in Barberton at the moment. And Richard, we're there just not, we're mining uh, Biff hosted right on the Omphifark at Princeton. And we've got Galaxy running, which is the most discreet, interesting, structurally complex. Uh, it's a, Probably a, another million ounce play there, but we just don't have enough drilling, not enough development. All of those things that the old mining houses did in their sleep. To get a junior to put money into exploration, drilling and development underground 
these days is very difficult because we've got to pay the bill. I then eventually did my honours degree and MSc degree at WITS. And um, my first job after that, after the MSc, was to join another mining house, uh, JCI. And that was in 1963. Soon after that, JCI at that time had become involved in platinum through Rustenburg Platz, which is part of the JCI story. And uh, both Morris and I were then assigned jobs in the Bushveld complex. So from the Witwatersrand now, we both picked up a tremendous experience in the Bushveld complex. I was assigned a job in looking at the nickel pipes west of the Pilonsberg and spent some very good time there. And was lucky to have um, some extremely good mentors. And I think that's another important point I'd like to make. One of the guys there was um, Frank Vermark. He was my boss at the time. And he, again, stressed the importance of geological mapping. So, again, hammered into me. <laughs> so, uh, the other guy that I met there was... My a field assistant who had been allocated to me, and uh, as part of the exploration, I'll Bill Nan. And over the years, we became ex- very good friends, and I tried to con- convince him to do geology. However, he felt that geology was not quite his calling. He studied mining engineering, and eventually he became the MD of JCI in later years. So he had a stellar position and he became the chief technical director of uh, Anglo-American and Anglo-Gold, subsequently Anglo-Gold. So you may meet these um, uh, interesting people along the way as well. And Morris, incidentally, at that time um, had a mapping job in the eastern Bushveld, and he then was exposed to the Marensky Reef and the mapping of the Marensky Reef, and he became absolutely besotted with the bushveld. Uh, I was totally convinced that uh, platinum was, was where I wanted to be if I was going to be a geologist. And sure enough, uh, after several stints at Western Areas, I graduated, and I, before graduating, I applied to JCI uh, to get a job at Rustenburg. And uh, it just so happened that platinum had had just started to come out of one of its many doldrums. And that is a feature, was a feature of, of the platinum industry. At the time, it was very small. I mean, Rustenburg Platz produced, mined about 400,000 tons a month. And there was a bit of mining up the road. And of course, there was nobody else. In fact, JCI believed that nobody else could ever mine PGMs, you know, because they were the only ones who had the expertise. So... Anyway, I ended up at, uh, at, at Rustenburg Platz, and um, it was great for two years. We, we, we were actually increasing production. So we now had a chief geologist and two operating geologists. So when you talk about mapping, you also need to talk about walking, Richard. Uh, I walked underground miles and miles and miles, but I was much happier walking underground in a platinum mine than, than, than I would have been in a gold mine. <laughs> and, and, but I fell in love with the Bushveld. And of course, uh, I uh, uh, subsequently met uh, Frank Vermark. Uh, he, beca- he was our group geologist and 
Uh, Frank had great interest in in, in the uh, origins of the bushveld and and things like that. And and of course, the, there was more to bushveld than than platinum. I mean, you talked about the nickel. That was Fluckfontein, I presume. Yeah. And uh, there, there was the chromite. So there was there was all these varieties of things. But that didn't stop the fact that the platinum industry went up and down like a yo-yo for uh, years and years and years. And uh, you didn't know whether you were going to be on the chopping list or you were going to survive, you know. And so it was quite stressful. So back to Gordon Waddle. And and this is, again, how being a, having a mining house, uh, things were different because the mining house had the strength to allow – the Platinum Division, for example, uh, which was Rustenburg Platts, essentially, that was what it was, uh, to survive. When at one stage uh, we made 200,000 rand for the year profit, and that was based on nickel because we were selling nickel as a byproduct. But Waddle came along and said, no, this is enough of this. We, we need to stabilize the platinum industry. And uh, he went off and made friends with the Russians, who were the ones that were actually screwing it up because they would – sell platinum for nothing just because they could, because they were actually producing nickel. Palladium in those days was, was a nothing metal anyway. Nobody even heard of it, except the dentists. They used it a lot, uh, uh, um, and, and people who wanted white gold. But uh, So Waddle stabilized uh, the, the platinum industry, and, and JCI's platinum division started to make inroads and, and, and grow. And uh, ultimately, it got to the point where it was self-supporting. We, we didn't have to r- uh, run to JCI for funding to keep going. And we started developing new mines and opening up uh, the bushveld. And, of course, uh, that later became an absolutely essential part of, of uh, retaining mineral rights. But back then we were developing because um, the market was developing. And that market was developed by uh, guys like um, – Waddle and other JCI directors, where, whereby they convinced the Japanese that uh, platinum looked better on their fingers than gold. So I was going between Rustenburg section and Union section up the road, getting a little bit of advancement as, as I went along, now fully convinced that I am a geologist, by the way, and no longer doubting anything, and, and totally... Uh, Obsessed with with the interests of the bushveld, and of course, along comes guys like Morris, who by then had already fallen in love with the bushveld. And when you met Morris, and you started talking about the bushveld, uh, I mean, he just carried you away. I mean, he just wanted to know. Uh, I mean, you were the guy that was walking underground, and 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 mapping and and so on more than he could because he he was from head office, but. You couldn't tell him enough. I mean, he just wanted to absorb everything. And uh, together we eventually did the, the paper on, on Rustenburg. And, of course, he did other follow-ups on all the, the aspects of the Marensky Reef that uh, hitherto had not ever been discussed. Because that was the other thing. In the days of the JCI uh, situation, we, certainly in the Platinum Division, were not allowed to talk to – people from Impala Platinum, which by now had come along and uh, much to um, the chagrin of uh, people like you, Scott Russell, our technical director, who had, who had said they will never be able to produce platinum. They, they were a, a major force. 
But uh, so we weren't allowed to talk to those guys um, even, and that later changed, thank goodness. But uh, so Morris was uh, uh, one of the drivers between be, behind us, getting to know more about uh, and Bushveld and about other things. As Frank said, they learnt the mining game. We did exploration correctly. We didn't make mistakes. Uh, we had money because these mining companies, which became seven, six, five of them, uh, they were actually invest investment houses. They were not just mining companies. With the result is they had enough money to stake exploration. They paid for it themselves. They didn't have to borrow any money, which meant that we were spending hundreds of millions of rands every year on our budgets in exploration. The boards were very, very supportive. They didn't mind spending it. I think they listened to us, which we continually said that by mining you deplete your ore reserves and you better replace them. So by spending those hundreds of millions, and everybody was doing it, all our mining companies, although there were some wonderful things. In those days, you didn't tell your opposition anything. Nothing. I can remember crawling around Frank's exploration, and we'd go and park the Land Rover under a tree and take our binoculars and count the rods on the drill rigs to know how deep they were. And uh, it was, life has changed. Today, you put it in the newspaper. Uh, it's not the same game at all. We were both approached in 1965 by Des Pretorius at the Economic Geology Research Unit. And I might just add that the Economic Geology Research Unit, together with the um, Precambrian Research Unit at Cape Town and the Bushveld Research Unit at Pretoria, were all started because of an organization called the Chamber of Mines. And the Chamber of Mines had a committee that advised them. And this committee consisted of the consulting geologists of, uh, of the big six or seven or what, whatever. <laughs> so this is highly important. And they said, look, we need research in the Bushveld. We need research in the Vidvardasrand. And so let's get it going with these uh, units that were formed. And they acted as incredible training grounds for young geologists. And we don't really get those opportunities anymore. Uh, but we need to think about that as an important thing because many people here, I think Frank and uh, I'm not sure if Ronnie was involved at some stage, but were involved with the Economic Geology Research Unit. And I think we learned a hell of a lot. And, and of course, one of the things that JCI offered the fundamental research unit and and the other departments were, were these um, conferences that we what did we call them? We had a different name for them, but anyway, we symposium. symposium sort of thing. And and we would get together as a group and present papers. It gave you as an individual an opportunity to do a presentation, you know, in public and, and on, a, on a more academic or, or a practical level. And to hear what other people were doing and what, what other people had uh, uh, been doing in, in the company. And of course, with that multitude of uh, different product uh, commodities, uh, there was the, the opportunity to move from one to the other. And many of us did. I was far too happy where I was to want to move. And uh, although I came close a couple of times and, um, 
anyway, so ended up uh, 13 years on the mines uh, and got to know the Bushveld very well, followed by um, promotion to head office. And that really was the beginning of the whole story of commodities. And again, through this uh, whole um, upper mantle project, which was actually uh, orchestrated by the Economic Geology Research Unit, was, which was got the sanction of the Chamber of Mines. So again, Chamber of Mines played a very important part here in facilitating um, what one could do at those times. But I think the thing that really stood out was the importance, again, of geological mapping. And um, again, this has been extremely important during my career in geology to have that understanding. Everything else fits in later. It's fine, no problem. But you've got to understand geology in the field, number one. And I, and I think we were lucky in being given that opportunity. Richard's talked about the Chamber of Mines. I mean, what, a, what an experience that was to sit on that consulting geologist committee and meet your peer uh, geologists from the other groups and talk about common issues of research and always accompanied by one or two beers. My involvement with the Geological Society probably reached its peak during the times at JCI. Uh, they, they were highly supportive of us undertaking these, um, these tasks and it started off with the Western Transvaal branch. We used to drive down to Potchefstroom, and it was a very dour, conservative bunch of guys at the University of Potchefstroom who, who used to organize the most boring lectures, and we'd have coffee and biscuit afterwards. And, uh, and there were, if we were lucky, there were about 10 or 12 people. And I ended up as chairman of that thing, and we moved the venue to the hotel got sponsors for beer and food, and we were getting 150 people at each meeting. <laughs> it was a great privilege for me to succeed Richard as president of the Geological Society, and I think during that year, our biggest achievement was the restructuring of the Geological Society into more of a business-orientated um, organization. And I think the foundations or the principles that, that we put in place, they're pretty much in place today. And uh, that was uh, 25 years ago, so at least something's worked. (laughs) (laughs) Frank, you've often told me that the best geologist is the one that's touched the most rocks. And I'm sure you've touched many rocks. Well, it's an interesting comment because the person who told me that was none other than uh, Professor (laughs) Desbratorius. And... uh, Yes, so, you know, we were talking earlier, and I mean, he had a formidable presence, Des. He, um, he, he kind of looked like uh, Paul Kruger, and uh, he had a voice that boomed. But before we get on to Des, I, I, I'll maybe just give a quick thumbnail sketch of how I evolved into geology. And I was exiled by my parents to boarding school when I was seven, and had the great fortune of having Dr. Tony Brink as uh, one of our housemasters at the school. And he and Tim Partridge became probably the top uh, engineering geologist of South Africa. And Tony talked to me lots about geology, and I had a cousin who was kind of interested. So at the age of eight, you know, you always say to kids, what are you going to be doing? And I said, I'm going to become a geologist. And lo and behold, it did happen. 
I was at Wits as well, and it was an extraordinary time. Um, I had a fairly prolonged career at Wits, uh, <laughs> much to my parents' distress. Started in 1967 and ended in 1974. <laughs> um, but uh, during that period, I had great fortune of being lectured by uh, Professor Tom Kievers. And uh, Tom used to play classical music for the first 10 minutes of every lecture. And he'd turn the dim the lights and we'd sit in the auditorium in silence listening to this classical music. It's, uh, there are a million stories that can be told about him. There were brilliant lecturers that we had at Wits at the time. It was a, a really great time. And it, fortunately, during my honors year, I was looking for a job when we finished the next year. And during the course of that year, I had met Richard and Morris, who had just finished their their field work on their PhD. In fact, I think it had largely been written up at that stage. And um, they'd just become involved with JCI. In fact, it was after you'd finished. And they persuaded me to join the JCI group. Prior to that, I'd worked for about a year in northern Namibia for Texas Gulf Exploration. And that's the first time that I met Ted Grubicki. Uh And we had the most phenomenal boss up there, a fellow called Ned Poole. Who was wild, <laughs> but he was a he was a brilliant economic geologist. So, off I went to JCI, and Richard, because of his experience as a student, uh, suggested that I uh, I took a job on the on the on the JCI gold mines, which I did, and I started my JCI career with uh, at Western Areas Gold Mine, and I remember Des Pretorius saying, "God, what a waste." And I said to him, well, you know, I'm going to Western areas. And he said, oh, that's different. He said, if you can sort out the geology and understand the geology of that mine within 12 months, you're going to be able to work anywhere. And it was a complicated ore body, and it was a, probably one of the most exciting experiences of my life. When in the middle of the night, I was having a dream, and I could see the mine in three dimensions. <laughs> and I think that's the big thing about why we always say, to young geologists, work on a mine so that you can get this experience of seeing an ore body in three dimensions. There were some really hairy moments on the mine. Uh, I'd been there about a month and I got caught in a rock fall and was carried out in a stretcher and spent a few days in hospital. Uh, that was uh, quite, quite interesting. And uh, we had a massive underground fire on the mine. That the, the mine burned for a month. It was the largest, longest most expensive underground fire in the history of the Witwatersrand gold mines. And I, I did the night shift, and the geologists were right there with the proto-teams because we were the only ones who understood the three dimensions of the ore body and how to access places where they could go and fight the fire from. So that was a very interesting time. Um, from the mine, I was then, in fact, uh, we were due to, after we got married, my wife and I, we we're due to go back to the mine and we'd been allocated a, a house at Hillshaven which is one of the least desirable places in the world to live and while we were on honeymoon uh, I got back and found out that I'd been transferred to Richard and Morris's fundamental research unit and that was one of the happiest days of my life outside of my wedding day <laughs> I'm sure it pays too. Um, and um, and I started a research program but during that time I was also seconded to the economic geology research unit at Wits working under Des Pretorius. 
And gosh, what a mentor he was. I mean, he's one of those heroes in my life. We all had our mentors in all those companies we were telling you about. They were the top geologists. And everything I know or knew, I learned from everybody I worked for. They were fantastic geologists. I don't think we can repeat that easily. So I think a young geologist today must not try and be self-taught. And they all are trying to be self-taught. They should pick up the people they, they, they can diagnostically realize are good. They should latch onto them. They should work for them or with them. They should talk to them because mentors are the most important thing to a young geologist. If you remember that uh, Colin Powell, very wonderful uh, military guy in the USA, he gave a talk about how to pick people. It was a wonderful talk. And it just meant that if you were going to run a company or your own business, you must employ people that are better than you are. And that was a creed that I carried. I think everybody I employed in all these companies were better than I was. So they were all damn good geologists. And uh, we had, uh, remember Isaac Newton when he wrote that letter? And he said that he, if he could see further, it were from the shoulders of giants. Well, that's what I'm trying to say. Everybody that I worked with were great giants in geology. And I just hope, and I've lost touch with it, I just hope that there are still great giants in our game. So that's where the onus is. But passion about rocks, mentorship, uh, geology just gives you such a huge platform. I've travelled into six continents, including Antarctica. What an amazing life i'm just very thankful for that i'm thankful for the people i've met who have helped me and i'm also very much in a mentorship type of phase of my career now where i just love feeding back into young people as long as they've got enthusiasm and i couldn't agree with derek more about coming away from self-teaching to um, i think that's because the big thrust that the gsa can get into is getting our mentors out there, getting maybe the universities, we need to get more aggressive about getting the guys on the ground. That might be an unfair statement, but I'll, I'll leave it at that. One thing I did learn in my career, it doesn't matter what task you're carrying out, always put your maximum energy into it and always make it as interesting as you can. Try and find new, new angles, new ways of looking at things. Uh, there's a lot to be learned from, from, from the most humble of people you may be working with. Everyone has got eyes, everyone has got opinions, and they're all important. Listen to them all and learn. Modify their views if, if you wish. Help them to uh, see things the way you do. But often they bring uh, glimpses of, of truisms or, or, or observations that, that uh, other eyes don't, didn't pick up. It was also during my JCI time that I, I, I met our current president. He, he just retired from the National Union of Mine Workers, and uh, uh, he, his office was immediately above mine, and we used to move, uh, meet in the lift on, on occasion and so on and swap niceties. Um, I think towards the end of the, the great days of JCI, the golden era, uh, I think everybody that's online here would, would know this, 
is uh, it was the time where Nelson Mandela was being released and the political uh, situation was changing in South Africa. And there were a handful of us, certainly in JCI, that were called apart by the board. And basically we were told to go and find the world and travel the world and look for opportunities. And for, I guess, two or three years, Ron, you were part of that group, uh, we traveled the world. It was uh, not great for our families, uh, but boy, what experiences. And we developed an international knowledge of people from around the network of note. And uh, gosh, we, we saw some extraordinary things. As Frank alluded to, after the last three years or so of JCI, we started to do something we'd never done before. And, and from a platinum point of view, you could understand it. We had 80% of the world's platinum. Why would we want to travel overseas and start finding other platinum deposits? That could only, you know, mess things up. But in actual fact, the, the convincing point was that what if somebody else did it and you weren't involved? The risks there were greater. Uh, and so we started to go with Frank and the boys uh, uh, um, traveling around the world, Australia, Canada, places like that. And uh, it, it, uh, it really changed our outlook on, on geology. And, and that is something I would stress for young geologists. To, when you get a chance to go somewhere and learn something, to go somewhere exotic even, uh, there were some places I didn't want to go to eventually, but I'd went. Take the opportunity and go. And and uh, and again, going back to a company like JCI, they they made you gave you those opportunities, and you had the chance to expand and better yourself, and to con- contribute to other people, and to contribute to the group, the greater group. At this point, I get to being Amplets, uh, which was. September the 1st, 1997, the demise of JCI, which broke our hearts. But after a couple of years and when I saw what happened with uh, JCI Limited, I was so thankful about Amplats. And it it was a mini JCI. I mean, it carried all the trays that JCI and all the uh, principles that were in JCI. It had all the people. So uh, those were good Good times. The, the, one of the great sadnesses was the breakup of, of the JCI group in, in the unbundling. We understand the political reasons for that. And very sadly, JCI Limited, which came out of that, uh, had a very, you know, an unfortunate demise uh, through the misadventures of our chief executive. And I was a, at a bit of a loose end of what to do. At 1998 wasn't a good time to be unemployed. Uh, the mining industry was in um, in dire straits, and the greatest fortune happened is that my old friend Derek uh, Carl came back into my life, and he and Colleen had just set up a company called the Mineral Corporation, and uh, they had been working together for six months. And I think Derek maybe was just getting a little bit earbashed by Colleen, <laughs> and he needed some male company around the place. So he and I went and had lunch at a at a very nice restaurant in just near Hillbrow, believe it or not. And uh, by the time we we got to the main course and the wine was finished, he'd offered me half the company. <laughs> <laughs> and then we got stuck into the liqueurs, and uh, we shook hands. And 
he and Colleen diluted down to 20% <laughs> and uh, picked up a pro rata share of the loan account. And so the, the Mineral Corporation was born. He pinched all those shares from me over lunch, but he, he wasn't telling the truth, I can tell you, because we didn't quite go down to 20%, Colleen and I, but Frank certainly got a big whack. And um, I had 24 years with JCI, and I was 21 years with the Mineral Corporation, 22 years. Wow. So, um, yeah, I think uh, probably one of the exciting things in my life is, is the people that I've met. And goodness gracious, I mean, it's from kings and queens and presidents and prime ministers and ministers. And I mean, we, we, we did a job for Prince Andrew when he was... Uh, in, he had a decent reputation, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was for Trade Partners UK, and we, uh, we presented the findings in the UK, and uh, he came out to South Africa after that, and the High Commission phoned me from Hyde Park and said, he's coming, would you come and meet him to talk about the project? So I was quite excited about this. So off we go, and uh, and my wife's with me, and he asked me about the project, and I, I spent about four minutes telling him, and he said, no, that's very interesting, thank you. And then he turned to my wife and said, and what do you do? <laughs> so she said, well, I play golf. He said, me too, and that's the last I talked to him. <laughs> you know, and did they go play golf? No, they didn't, yeah. So all of you have had long careers and many years in one company, and Derek, I know you have. <laughs> I, I'm a bit older than these guys, and I worked in the mid to late 50s, and I worked in Central Africa, and I worked in the, Zim, the, the Zambezi area. We were in field camps of the day, but I might just tell you that that's, I also worked for groups that was before their time. Uh, I worked for Central Mining, which was the biggest gold mining company in Johannesburg at one time. They bought Rand Mines, and I worked for Rand Mines for 10 years. Remarkable companies with remarkable geologists. The best example that's on my wall somewhere here is Bill Borches is stripping the overlying rocks to the bits. The two maps, the one with the overlying rocks and the ones without. And that was presented, uh, I think it was 1961, it's one of the big conferences. He was a great geologist. We had other great geologists in Rand Mines. Anyway, I worked for them in Central Africa and in the Zambezi Valley. In fact, we were the first people to put a camp up at Mana Pools. And uh, nobody had ever been there. It was a, a tsetse fly area. There were fly gates and people didn't, weren't allowed in. But we went in. We were looking for copper and we found it. In fact, we found a deposit which we sold to Lonrock. But we worked there for four years. Interesting times. No fridges, no radios, and no roads. <laughs> and that was a distance of about 200 kilometers down to the Mozambique border. And we spent four years on our feet. We had fly camps. We had porters. And every Monday morning from a fly camp, we used to head off with about 25 porters. We'd work, map sample the streams, and at about four o'clock, we'd carry definitely the old 
old-fashioned cookboy and all the equipment. And he used to set up a camp every night at four o'clock. And we used to go and fish and shoot guinea fowl. And we used to shoot for the pot for those four years. We fed in the field probably 20 or 30 laborers at a time. When we found the deposit, which, which the old shamrock mine, um, we had 200 Shangran contract workers. And uh, we looked after them. There were no other whites in the area. Nobody was allowed into the area. It was remarkable to work under those conditions. When you think of what the modern guys have with communications and fridges, and, and all the temperatures were well over 100 degrees if, uh, at times in the hot valley. Anyway, we, that was a wonderful time of our lives. Rand Mines was a great company, but it suffered the same fate as JCI. It just sold all its assets, and it just broke up. And uh, then after that, um, one realized that, that, yes, there were seven uh, mining companies at the time. And um, then we moved to other groups. We worked with other groups. But what actually happened was that uh, I decided that uh, for, my sons, uh, for my sins, I would form a a consulting company and we joined up with aircraft operating company and the hunting group of london and we formed hunting geology and, Ge and geophysics limited but the big thing was being part of aoc we developed in this country the first time a remote sensing and uh, we developed an expertise with hunting geology and geophysics of, of photogeology and that was a remarkable breakthrough in this country. I was consulting geologists for some 20 years, then became a, a new business director of Anglobal Mining. And then I retired at the age of 60. And that's when we formed the Mineral Corporation. And then Colin and I actually retired again. That was my second retirement. And um, after some eight or nine or 10 years, and we then decided that that time at Mineral Corporation was probably the end of all the hard work. And so at the age of something like, uh, I think it was 71 or 72, I went on my own. But now that was wonderful because I started to work for small mining companies doing field mapping, controlling, drilling, and it was brilliant to get back into the field to actually look at the rocks, which is the most fantastic seven or eight years. Phil, you've got loads of experience in small mining companies, but I think you also worked for some bigger ones. Keep in mind, I, uh, my early graduate life was in New Zealand, and uh, it's, my career really took off when I came across to South Africa. And uh, I, I look at it from, um, I did a master's in New Zealand, uh, and I was working with Franco Pirano, who eventually came to take over Bob Mason's oh. course at Rhodes. Mm. And Franco was my mentor. And to Derek's point, and you know, he he was just absolutely amazing. And I subsequently, uh, he really taught me how to, what I say, think big. And then by nature, I'm a fastidious geologist in terms of attention to detail. So I had this 
dichotomy of really big thinking, understanding plate tectonics, that type of stuff, right down to thin section work. And my first master's was actually discovered a brand new, undiscovered grass and tin tungsten system in New Zealand. And then and we were working on that bigger picture and then he eventually departed. Franco encouraged me to come to Grahamstown and uh, I saved up enough money to, because yeah, in those days we call, I call it a zombie course because you do two years work in one, in one year and in 84 I did exactly that. And uh, you'll recall Hugh Eels was running the department there, a really amazing facility, just Goonie Marsh, the Platinum Research, all of these things. And then I had Franco, and here's me coming from what I call the Young Rocks. I knew all about volcanoes and glaciers and anything younger than 600 million years old. I was pretty <laughs> sharp on it, but... Uh, show me what a, a, a three billion year old conglomerate or what Archean rocks were. I'd never seen them. So the move over to here was just absolutely mind blowing for me. And that year was very formative in as much as, as you're probably all aware, we cover a lot of ground. I'd, the bushveld was just, I struggled to cope with the bushveld, the immensity of the mineral system. I, I struggled with the getting my mind around the vits, and in later years I was put to the test mining it eventually, not like you guys early on. It was uh, not that long ago with uh, Great Basin Gold, and uh, I, I was probably, God had intended that I had to have some vits put onto me so <laughs> to complete my cycle. But the what I can say is his mentorship and then the exposure to these minerals uh, and really fueled my, um, if I can call it my own intrigue and my own intellectual capacity to get into what I call applied geology. When I was at Rhodes, that's where I met Mark Bristow. And Mark was doing his PhD and he had come and do XRF probe work fairly late at night because there was no drain on the power from the Grahamstown people cooking meals and stuff like that. And I was doing my normal 18-hour day crunching stuff out. And we got to know each other very well, uh, running, playing squash. And he was with Rand Mines uh, in, the, in the platinum sector at that stage. And then uh, it's interesting, a few names came up, Frank... Uh, when I finished Rhodes, the guy who employed me was Ted Grabitsky. And he picked me out. He said, I've got a job for you. And I, I'd run out of money by then. So I was really uh, overwhelmed. I said, no, come, you, you can work. Uh, we've got a few projects. So I ended up, as it turned out, at Cruscop in the Pilgrim's Rest area. And uh, subsequently, a couple of years after that, I joined Rand Mines, 86. 1st of April, 86, for April Fool's Day, and that was the beginning of another um, sojourn. Uh, a little bit akin to you guys and JCI, but you, I was younger than you, and I, I remember the unfolding of the Ram Mines group as a whole, and uh, you'll all be aware that what came out of that was the Rand Gold and Exploration Gold Division. 
But prior to that, we had a, our consultant was a guy, Louis Christen. He pulled me in one day at Corner House and said, they used to call him Squeaky because they're a very high-pitched voice, probably a lot higher than mine. But uh, <laughs> he said, Phil, I, I've got a job for you. Just go over to that cupboard in the corner of his immense office, which was about 10 metres away. And inside it was a huge pile of documents. And I said, so, uh, sir, what do I need to do? He says, grab all that stuff and go away and tell me what you're going to do. And it turned out they had done a JV with the Bears on all the TCL farms, which was over 900 farms, <laughs> mostly in northern Transvaal at that stage. And the uh, Bears had done lime sampling, and they'd taken a sample for rand mines on every single loam spot in their, uh, their ground surveys. So I, I went off, uh, had a look at this, and I thought, my golly, this, is, this could be interesting. Big picture, what are we going to do? He said, well, we've got to make a plan if we're going to sell the TCL farms or not. I said, you can't do that. Surely not. He said, well, we've already sold to JCI the platinum. I said, yeah, I suppose you must be joking. You've just given away the family jewels, right, Frank? <laughs> yeah, and uh, absolutely so he true. said, well, tough. We've had lunch with Warren Kula and the deal's done. And uh, so um, go and have a look at this. You've got four days and I want to know what you want to do. So it turned out that they, for every sample, they owed us a 36-element XRF analysis. And that's what I went to De Beers and they did it for me. It was 5.6 million rand of multi-element geochemistry. And that, the reason I bring it up is that was when we started this uh, applied geology thrust of wine, which is integrating um, geoscience data. And... Mm. We'd, we had no software. I had Willow Steer and Andy Clay who had worked amazing work on the uh, Fitz sedimentology and had actually gone a long way to computerizing and getting into creek estimations, etc., etc. What we All we had was Emil Vieta, our group geophysicist, who had a software package called Geosoft. And we panel beat a Geosoft to work for geologists contouring and away we went. So we, we ended up with, uh, I think it was 11 joint ventures on the properties and we kept the Pilgrim's Rest Goldfield going on the back of that work. And uh, it was a really, there was the first time that we really put, I had some really sharp geos working with me and we started looking at that. And then uh, then the, the breakup came and then you'll remember Rand Gold and Exploration had the five old ladies, Blafer, Harmony, the RPM, DRD, and, and Red Buffles. So I, I was summoned to, from the field, effectively Zanine at that stage, into Joburg, and I was told, you joining Mark Bristow, I said, oh, okay, uh, what's going on? He said, no, new company, and away you go. Uh, so they pulled me in as the non-FITS geologist, and... Uh, you guys may well know Adrian Reynolds, uh, in particular, the geological input. But we were a bunch of young geos, mavericks, really, at that stage. And we we were being mentored well, Derek, very well. But we also had this sort of um, uh, a very, very strong push to do something new in the, in the South African geological 
circle. And without going into the cable situation, we, we ended up with the, the takeover of Rand Golden Exploration and the infamous Peter Flack became the chairman. And there's a little story here, and I don't know if all of you know how Rand Gold Resources came to be, but Peter, uh, Mark Bristow had been at Peter Flack to try and sway the, the vote for eventually the takeover, and, and we failed. So Peter Flack told him, said, listen, I've got to talk to you. I actually want to fire you and your team. But, uh, <laughs> I've, you know, is there anything you want to say? And, and Mark said, I, I need an hour with you, Peter, with my team, and you'll change your mind. And he said, oh, you must be joking. Are you testing my sense of humour? So there was duly arranged this meeting. And to lay the scene, we had been working really hard trying to organise our life with the assets that we had at Rand Golden Exploration. But we had also said, listen, you guys, it's time to, to break out of South Africa and grow and get into other terrains, and uh, gold in particular. So this meeting was set up, and, and funny as it was, Ted Grabitsky was sitting across the table, Vaughan Armstrong, I remember, and, and Peter, and then there was Mark, myself, and Adrian, and Dave Ashworth, who was our CFO at the time. And we started this meeting and we painted a strategy, a growth strategy for Rangold Resources to grow through acquisitions in uh, East and West Africa and to grow into an exploration company that would potentially, depending on the quality of its exploration success, become a miner. And just to cut to the short, we, uh, an hour and a half later, we pulled out a case of castles and we were informed that they, we had 16 million rand a year to work with, which was the interest of a loan we had from rand. And that was what we could grow rand gold resources from. And we off we went. And uh, there, there's a remarkable story around all of that. But one of the, the, the main areas was um, Brett Kebble decided to buy BHP Marley without any board resolution. And it cost us around about 80-odd million dollars, which I'm not quite sure where he found that because <laughs> we were not making money. And one of, one of the intricacies of BHP Mali was they had a, a, a site called Lulo, which is in western Mali down from Kais. Uh, we had a Siama mine, which was running. But what we, what we found was... The, the egg in the basket took a little while to surface and it was called Marilla. It was just an absolute, ridiculously amazing ore body. And I, I, had, I was the first geologist to properly log. We only had 14 holes. And I went and logged them and they, the gold there was like a pepper shaker all the way down core. I'd never seen anything like it in my life and I mm. dare say most people who came to see Marilla if you had that luck you would never see that again and they've never found another one like it today they've thrown the book at it but the um, that set up ran gold and you know the story now they're still going strong as ever speaking of throwing the book at all these deposits and um, big exploration budgets I'd like to now bring in uh, Roy 
um, into the conversation from the Anglo days uh, before they, you know, uh, pulled out um, from all those big exploration projects um, using all those cutting edge techniques. I had a fascination for geology and minerals from early childhood, uh, having had the advantage of watching drilling operations on my home property. My family moved to a, a small holding on a, a, a ridge of greenstones uh, about 15 kilometers northeast or east-northeast of what is now Harare in Zimbabwe. And as a small child, I watched my parents bring in geophysicists and drilling machines and boring and, and uh, blasting wells to locate water. They didn't have water on the property. They were on the hill. And with great fascination as an eight-year-old, I had the advantage or the opportunity of uh, studying geology at high school on those field trips that I made with the small group of schoolboys, we went out with people of the ilk of uh, Dr. Ben Vorst, the guy who, who uh, put together the geology of the great dike of Zimbabwe. And we went on field excursions to the great dike, looked at the chrome scenes and seams and other phenomena, and we had a lot of fun. I then went off and decided under the uh, persuasion of my father to, to put my toes in the water to see if I really would like to pursue a career in geology before I committed at university. And I, I joined a, a, a group of explorationists known as Chartered Exploration based in Lusaka, and that taught me survival because... We, we uh, carried out our work in the Zambezi Valley escarpment area to the sort of northwest of what is now Kariba, all the way basically from a place called Ibwe Munyama near Chirundu on the Zambezi down to the Gwembi River, which comes in quite a long way up Lake Kariba. And our work took us daily from the top of the escarpment down to the bottom on foot uh, and then back up to the top with uh, three or four helpers. And uh, we went back to the top of the escarpment to rejoin our porters. Each small team had about 20 porters to carry the equipment for the night's fly camping, taking food and provisions and sampling materials and mattocks and things needed for the daily work on their backs and they stayed on top of the escarpment and uh, we who were doing the sampling and mapping going up and down the dongas and gullies on the escarpment through the buffalo beans and through the uh, buffalo herds in the Zambezi Valley and up to the top would meet them at a pre-arranged uh, destination where hopefully they'd set up a, a camp Usually about four times out of five, we'd find them where we thought they would be. And uh, occasionally uh, we didn't find them and slept, slept the night in the open. But it was a wonderful experience and one really learned survival and uh, independence that way. I came back from Rhodes uh, 
in uh, at the end of 1965, coincident with uh, UDI, uh, declared by Ian Smith's government. And uh, it wasn't very long after that that I was out in the field again in the Urungwe, south of the Zambezi, with Anglo-American. So for the next 10 years, I varied between doing army stints and uh, keeping my eyes open for for mineral evidence and learning the geology of the country as much as I was looking for other kinds of mines. In 1977, I moved south to South Africa. Uh, it, was, it wasn't possible to continue uh, working in the field in Zimbabwe. The situation was very difficult, to put it mildly. And uh, I became involved in uranium exploration in the Karoo, based at Beaufort West, with Anglo-American, very different sort of line of business, but it taught me new skills. Uh, the Karoo took me uh, until 1977, when uh, I moved up to Vintuk in Namibia, still with Anglo-American, and uh, I became involved running the exploration because the country manager in that country was ill at the time in Johannesburg. And uh, I took over a project ranging from uh, the Koga land in the north to uh, the Sperkabit in the uh, southwestern south part of the country, right down near the Orange River. And it was in the Sperkabit that... Uh, I worked with a very good team of people, and we uh, discovered the scorpion oxide zinc resource. It took about 10 years before we could convince, or I could convince uh, Anglo that uh, oxide zinc was indeed a, a worthwhile commodity to extract zinc from. Moved to Johannesburg in 1983, to Anglo's head office, where I worked uh, directly with the late Louis Kutsi. I succeeded him when Louis literally uh, died in the saddle in the office, passage uh, in the corridor outside my office. That was the beginning of a very interesting um, 12 years of my career, uh, where I had the good fortune to manage Anglo's base, uh, non-Witwatersrand and non-diamonds uh, and non-coal uh, exploration in Southern Africa and expand it across Africa uh, as Africa opened up to the form former pariah state of South Africa. I recall very well a trip I made with the late Adrian Fersfeld into south southwestern Angola I went up to Luanda uh, a few days after the first signing of the first peace accord between Sam and Joma's group and the uh, prevailing uh, guys who were running Angola at that stage out of Luanda. Uh, the, the civil war was ended by signature of a piece of paper, and within a few days we were in Luanda, and we uh, went out to the old Portuguese courtyards, geological survey offices, 
on the eastern side of Luanda. Uh, these things had been left to be, become overgrown by elephant grass and termite trees. Uh, there were mealies growing in, in the uh, passageways between the blocks of buildings. Anyway, we managed to get into the uh, rock uh, library, the, the, the rows and rows of wooden uh, drawers with termites creeping up, and a lot of the drawers were eaten. But in amongst this mess, uh, we, we managed to find uh, quite a few rock samples that were still identifiable by numbers. The Portuguese geologists who collected these over pre previous decades before the war. So we went straight to the uh, section on ironstone, thinking, aha, that's where we're going to find gossens and evidence of sulfide mineralization. So we sampled those that looked sufficiently interesting, and uh, on the results of those, we identified uh, gossens material with elevated nickel-copper values from an accessible part of Angola in southwestern Angola. Uh, we, we did a reconnaissance trip down there with uh, uh, some security people from the Angolan army. And uh, it was quite a, an interesting trip because a lot of the, the, the journey was made off track, off road, because there were still landmines in the old tracks and wrecks and vehicles and bits of Cuban uh, uh, military material scattered everywhere. There we managed to get access further north in Africa, picked up rumor of interesting, uh, an interesting prospect starting to develop in Mali. We flew a very circuitous route uh, up through Nairobi and Addis Ababa, and then across to um, through through to West Africa, then north to Mali, and eventually landed at Kai, where we were met by a, a, a Canadian who was contract drilling for uh, some interesting people who held this the mineral rights of what is now Sadiola, or became Sadiola, a hundred kilometers south of Kai. Uh, some of you will know that area quite well. And it was just a dirt track down, and we stayed overnight at the Sadiola uh, camp, which comprised two containers and a tent in the sweltering heat. Had a look at this prospect, and my eyes nearly popped out at this bland clay, sticky muck which was carrying these extraordinary gold values. It was very, you know, virtually nothing to see in the actual material, this soft, gunky stuff coming out of the drill cores, which had to be dried on charcoal fires and carefully handled, keep it out of rain or water because it just washes away. Very different sort of rocks. And we brought Sadiola into the fold. I... We were also involved at one stage in another unusual uh, discovery. During the uh, period when uh, base metals were badly depressed and I think all the mining houses were wondering what to do with uh, their staff and budgets had been slashed, uh, Louis could see 
decided uh, we should be looking at gas in the Karoo. And this is a pretty nebulous sort of target, but we went out and uh, we uh, brought in a couple of advisors again, bring in the best people you can. We brought in technical consultants from Texas. Where else do you go? And we learned a lot and uh, we looked at um, fracture densities and all sorts of things in the, and the sub structures and drilled a few holes in the Lindley Aylbron area and we discovered uh, a very unusual helium gas through resource on a farm called St. George. Thanks to all our speakers for all their uh, stories and interesting learnings as well. So with that, uh, we'll be back for more drinks uh, with our fossils uh, by Firelight. I'd like to just stop with the last sentence out of Derek Carl's book, which um, in Chapter 20, he talks about the mining corporations and the mining houses in Southern Africa. And he says, I've been privileged and in awe of being part of all of this, albeit as a Johnny-come-lately. Myself and Sofiso, we both feel that we are Johnny-come-latelys, but we've learned so much, guys. Thank you very much. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.